0: Hey, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Bridging the Gap. I am always appreciative of you taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. And I hope that every podcast we bring you, you take at least something away from, whether it's a point from the conversation or it's an action item or tactical item, you can go. But I know your time is valuable. And for you to spend some of it with me And our guest here on Bridging the Gap, I am uh, extremely appreciative. And Bridging the Gap, this is where we are looking to help financial advisors and really the entire industry bridge the gap between where the industry is today and where our industry will be in the future. We ultimately want to ensure we stay up with the trends, stay up with the innovation, and ultimately evolve our businesses to ensure the best experience for our clients in the years to come. That's what it's all about is building financial advisory firms to better serve our clients and to evolve in a way that we're delivering services and value that are based on their needs and their wants. And hopefully what we're trying to do is build a community here with Bridging the Gap to have people from the industry and people from technology and, and other industries to bring in their insight and their thoughts to help us understand what is going on outside of our own four walls to help us evolve and build? And I think that you can do that with community. And so what we wanted to do with bridging the gap was to take the experiences that I've had of sitting on the same side of the table of these of you as an advisor or financial professional and, and create a voice in a community that strives to create positive future change and continued progression with the advisor and the client advisor relationship in mind. There's no better way. Uh, to creating community of advisors and industry professionals and sharing thoughts than by bringing everybody together, bringing differing views and opinions and thoughts and ways of building firms together and allowing there to be a platform for everybody to talk and communicate and hopefully ideate amongst each other. And that's what we're trying to do here with Bridging the Gap. And community is benefited by having multiple opinions and multiple voices. And not everybody's going to agree with everything, and that's okay. But Let's start conversation and let's all evolve together. And community is benefited by those multiple opinions. And the way that you build community is you have these voices listening in and and participating. And hopefully, if you want to be on the podcast, let me know. I'd love to have you on. But share the podcast. Follow us, mattreiner.com, on all the social channels. And subscribe to this podcast as well at anywhere that you listen to podcasts, whether it's the Apple Podcasts app or Spotify or SoundCloud subscribe and share it and like us so that others can start benefiting and being part of this community. Because the more people we get involved, the more that we all are going to benefit and grow this community together from that standpoint. And in today's episode, I'm extremely jazzed about this one. Jonathan Dio from Mindful Money is an amazing mind in this business. He is trying to just flip the script on how we deliver financial advice and he's doing it in such a thoughtful, provoking way that just resonates. You know, the, the one thing that took away, you know, that stood out to me is, you know, Jonathan's been meditating for 25 years. Now, I've been meditating for two years and it's been life changing. So if you haven't done it, you know, that may be one takeaway you can have from this podcast. But what he's done is taken his lessons from meditation and translated them into building a financial advisory firm. That shifts the conversation and the focus from being about performance relative to a benchmark and rather being performance relative to your goals and objectives. That's financial planning at, at its core, right? You're like, well, that's what I always do. But how he focuses on translating that and articulating that and, and ensuring that clients stay away from the, the the irrationality that tends to happen focusing on value performance relative to just this broad benchmark, is really intriguing. And you know, he talks about you know, how there's no predictability and that this idea from Buddhism, which he, he was studying Buddhism and trying to be a Buddhist, and he, he, he went to being financial advisor and he's taking those lessons. And there's this concept that he talks about called monkey mind. Great concept, monkey mind is just that idea of, well, you're going to have to listen but it's so relevant and it related and it just hit home with me. And the other idea is this concept that he puts performance in quotes, but there's more to that and how he focuses on performance with relative to every unique individual plan and it reminds me of something I'm passionate about with the Peloton and power zone training that we talked about as well. And you know, the other thing that stood out is we talked about how people are always driven and how the challenges of social media in the world today, they only talk about what they've done well, but they never talk about what they've done poorly. In, in order to be good and stay true and meet your financial plan, there's some variables that come with investment management that we all can do, but it's about changing the mindset and the focus because we all see only the good, everybody's good decisions. Social media only shares the good stuff about life and that challenges us and makes us make irrational, sometimes bad financial decisions and so how do we stay true to that and it's managing the mind managing the expectations and jonathan and his team at mindful money do that in a remarkable way and it's so inspiring what he's done and i had an amazing conversation about behavioral psychology behavioral economics and how to implement that in your financial advisory firm and i think that you're going to take a lot away from it and so i'm going to stop talking and i'm going to let jonathan share his story and i think you're going to really enjoy it and so let's go on over to the podcast now This is Bridging
1: the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner.
0: Jonathan, great to have you on Bridging the Gap. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? How's everything holding up on your side? Things are great here, Matt. I'm happy to be on. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's gonna be a it's just gonna be really fun. I I think that what you are doing is just so innovative and, and where the industry I think is going from that perspective and And I always like to start. Why don't you just give the listeners your uh, a little bit of a background? What got you into this industry? What's the driver for you to be in this industry?
1: Yeah it's a, I mean, it's always a what's your origin story, right? So I actually started out with an interest in money when I was a kid because I noticed that all my friends had cooler stuff than I did. And so I was wondering, you know why that was. So I, you know, talked to parents. My parents were very open. We we were not well off. We were we were, I think, technically po- maybe maybe upper, you know, what is it, upper poor or lower lower middle class? But we didn't have much. So it sort of struck something in me that I wanted to discover more and wanted to have the ability to provide more for my family someday. When I was like nine and ten years old, so I started studying finance and I read about business and and just sort of educated myself. And this is like high school. I was that kind of nerd. And I ended up starting studying finance in college, but got horribly bored. Having having already read a lot of the books and a lot of the texts when I was a, when I was a high school student, you know, I used to study Value Line research for fun, and so got bored in college. Switched to philosophy and religious studies, and got a degree in philosophy and religion, actually. And then you know, I had a professor who said, "Hey, you, you like this stuff." Um, why don't you keep studying? So I came out to California to study at the Graduate Theological Union, and I started studying Buddhist phenomenology. And so I took basically a seven-year hiatus from an interest in money to study philosophy and psychology, and you know how we experience the world. That's what phenomenology is all about. And then my wife at the time, you know, said, "Hey, it's her turn to go to school." So I dropped out, and I have a an unfinished master's in Buddhist studies. I was on the path. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to get a PhD, but I, I quickly learned that that wasn't going to be my thing. I wasn't, wasn't that good with languages. And uh, frankly, I was more interested in, in Buddhism as a practitioner than as an academic. So I ended up you know, meditating a lot. And my wife said, hey, it's your turn to go to work. And with that unfinished degree and the degree in philosophy in the mid nineties in the Bay area, there wasn't a lot I could do, so I said, "Hey, how would I how would I try to get a job at, in investing?" And so I still had an interest in investing, so I went and interviewed at Dean Witter. That was the only place I interviewed, and they hired me. And I spent five years at literally seven different Wall Street firms until I figured out that investing isn't the thing I was interested in. Investing is something that's totally unpredictable, totally uncontrollable. And so, you know, I started my own company in two thousand one founded on this idea that education and planning can make a difference and I had six clients come with me and and sort of that's where it all kicks off but then the debacle that was 2008 2009 is where everything comes together that was the birth of mindful money I had a client who I had a great conversation with and she basically said hey you have to take these philosophies and you you have to write a book and when a Pulitzer prize-winning author says you have to write a book you have to write a book so took me 7 years to write the book but the the book is mindful money simple practices for reaching your financial goals and 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 improving or increasing your happiness dividend and the idea is simply that those things that we focus on in finance generally don't work to improve outcomes and there are some other things that we could focus on that would work to improve outcomes
0: and we're going to get into we're going to get into some of those i think which i think is such an interesting It's like the behavioral psychology, behavioral aspect of this business. And and I think that that kind of leads into your why, right? I always like to ask, you know, Simon Sinek is someone that I I think does a really good job of helping people and companies understand what their true why is, which goes beyond, you know, just what they do or just making a profit. And, And I'm always interested to kind of ask people that, right? He always talks about, you know, Apple's why is not that they build computers. That's not why they do that, what they do. They want to change the world. And, you know, they, they market it that way. What, I mean, from your standpoint in this industry of providing financial advice, right, which everybody thinks is the same. I mean, what's your ultimate why for you and for your, for Mindful Money and for your firm and, and what you all do? Yeah, by the way, I, I love Simon Sinek. I, I saw him speak publicly once, and then I, you know,
1: went and saw that video that, that everyone has seen, the Golden Circle video. It's just fantastic. So the, the idea of having a why that underlies everything is is you know right right at my alley. I love it. So I have a general belief that a and this comes out of experience, right? That a family's long term financial success is is determined by their level of financial education and their proclivity towards financial planning. Now. I've been in the business long enough, and I've been reading the financial press long enough to see that our culture of personal finance is not focused in those two areas. It doesn't serve the vast majority of people. And I think that there are two reasons for this. One, you know, always be closing. 99% of the financial services world, including brokers, most advisors, product manufacturers, media, and even the clients themselves are focused on using current events to predict, to predict outcomes in economies and markets. Now, it's a giant game, who has better data, who can trade the most quickly, who can employ that information, to make better decisions. And it just, it doesn't work. There's an enormous volume of academic evidence that says it doesn't work. So that's, that's like the first reason why I'm trying to focus the reasoning and the services on that education, the planning. The second thing is we teach nothing practical about money or economics to our kids when they're growing up. So I'm hoping to create this bridge for people to stop being market focused and current event driven and start being goal focused and planning driven.
0: I love that. I love that. And 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 that kind of leads into this whole aspect of... I mean, that's the challenge with this industry, right? I mean, what you're trying to do is to ultimately change this entire industry, right? I mean, in the, in the perspective that people have about what we do in this industry, right? Too often... You know, it was all about just, you know, what type of investment strategy? What are you going to how are you going to perform and all that type of stuff? And ultimately, you're trying to change the whole perspective of what we do. And so, I mean, we should all get behind you because I think that where you're going is, is the right way. I mean, that's the depth of what you're trying to do. Am I missing something there? You're just trying to change the perspective of this industry to make it where it has truer and better outcomes for individuals going forward.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. It's, it's a laser focus on improving client outcomes, which, you know, it starts with, we have to admit that the vast majority of ink that's spilled and words that are spoken, you know, in service of who's going to win the election, you know, when's the recession going to be over, when are we going to have a vaccine for this virus? How effective is that vaccine going to be? The vast majority of that stuff when it comes to in the financial press doesn't help anyone make any better decisions, doesn't improve anyone's outcomes. It actually creates a lot more anxiety than is necessary. There's nothing we can actually take out of that information and use to make better decisions. And so why do we pay any attention to that stuff at all? And yet our entire industry is just is just buried in you know this week's or this month's or this quarter's numbers. It just, it just makes no sense.
0: So yeah, trying to change the entire industry. You know, just a small, just a small effort, right? But it's an effort. It's a, it's a very, it's an effort that is based in in tons of empirical evidence of it working, right? And, and versus, you know, how it has been. And you know, you, you, we've talked a lot about in our conversations about you know behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, and that kind of drives a lot of what you all do and what you do and your perspective. Where did that come from? I mean, what what type of you know, research or experiences led to you feeling so strongly about this aspect of delivering advice and information, right? There's so many other options you could have gone with, but you chose kind of this approach, which is based on, on a ton of, you know, data and, and research. But what was, was there like one set of research or one experience you had that was like, I got it. I mean, this is, this is so core and, and, and great. I, I would say there's not there's not one. there's I think there's two. And when you, when I put the two together,
1: it's when it started making a lot of sense to me. and and the first was, you know, I spent so I I purchased my first stock when I was nine years old. I had some summer money from you know from some summer job or or from birthday money or whatever. and I, and I bought a couple of shares of a banking stock and it, I lost everything. and and so I've been interested in this for so long and I've tried so many different ways of investing and I've read, I've read so many different pundits and, and their systems and, and trading systems and, you know, and I've read the real estate research and I've read, you know, when small caps are in favor. And I've read so many different opinions on this stuff that, and tried so many myself unsuccessfully to realize that it was never any one that was the problem. And then, you know, after that, I spent a whole bunch, I've been meditating for 25 years. And so what I realized when I meditate is in my meditation practice, my mind will engage anything. Like if if I'm sitting and and the there's a sound upstairs you know the refrigerator kicks in my mind will chase that down and say okay what is that sound oh well, it's just a refrigerator that kicked in and then it'll it'll go away but it, there's a serial you know this attention this attention this attention thing after thing after thing after thing now when you apply what Buddhists call monkey mind to the world of investing, which is the media saying, do this, no, do this, no, do this, no, do this. You see that there's this, there's this treadmill that we're on. Oh, this didn't work. You know, I tried this and didn't make money. I tried that and I made money, but then I didn't make money and I tried this and it made money and then it didn't make money. And then I tried this and it hurt me. And I tried this and I tried this and that person says this and that person says this. You realize there isn't, there isn't predictability. There is only your mind chasing stuff. And then you start reading research on on both what your mind does, and on the impossibility to outperform you know the index. And you put those two things together, you realize that hey, there is academic evidence out there that can tell us to do three basic things. And 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 once you've done those three basic things, which are you know asset allocation, diversification, rebalance. Once you've done those three things, there isn't any more science that you can apply to investing. There isn't any more intelligent way to do it. And so. Everything else is a rounding error. So focus on those three things, and then it's no longer managing investments. It's managing the person and the human being that's desirous of different outcomes and scared at some times and greedy at other times. How do you manage that mind, that mind state? That's Those two things coming together, the idea of I tried lots of different ways that didn't work, and then I sat and watched my mind go crazy for 25 years. That, that actually brings us to this idea of, hey, maybe the behavioral research is right, and maybe the simple portfolio is the right one.
0: Right. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, so I I applaud you for meditating for 25 years. I'm on my second year meditating and it is life-changing. It really is. And I think that to be able to build the business model of financial advice around the lessons that you learn from meditation is, is, is extremely valuable. I mean, just the, the ability to put the mind at ease because, you know, I've, you know, when I was, managing assets right I, I've had multiple of those conversations that everybody is always just chasing the hot thing it's always the hot thing that they're t- chasing they're, they're, it's whether the tech bubble or it's the you know it's the marijuana stocks or whatever it is they're always trying to chase that and it's just it's kind of like the fridge ticking on and your just mind chases after that and then this other sound and your mind chases after that and so the ability to control that. And you know, one thing that we talked about in our pre-recording calls was this idea of you putting uh, performance in quotes when you talk to clients. How does that work? And, and and how is it taken by the client, right? I think that if you... Because like for someone that knows meditation, I get it. I understand it. But someone that doesn't know meditation... There's a huge new learning curve that they have to go through so how do you go about walking the client through that process and helping them come to ease with their their mind when it comes to financial decisions
1: so, so the specific question about the the use of the word performance in you know in quotes in the what we call the explore fit meeting you know we're not we're not actually in that moment saying you know, meditate and this will all be okay. That's not, I want to go, I want to talk to both things here. The first thing is that question of of performance in quotes. So, you know, we have a long onboarding process. The first time that a client meets one of my team face-to-face or myself face-to-face, like the third or fourth bullet point on our agenda is we put performance in quotes. And really we put it in quotes and we ask the client why we put it in quotes. And what we're trying to do is trying to suss out whether, you know, this, what you, how important relative performance is to this client and if if the if the person says you know oh it's it's in quotes because your performance is so good that then we know that that's kind of a red flag we got to we got to dig deeper so performance to us is again going back to the fact that we're goal focused and planning driven so performance to us is you are you are succeeding if you are on the path to attaining your goals based on your plan. And it is not, how are we doing relative to a benchmark? Now, we we look at how we're doing relative to a benchmark, and I think that's something that we have to do, but it's not something that I can, I can implement on, right? I, I can't improve outcomes relative to a benchmark. Um, that is not possible. What I can do is help a human being Make better decisions, you know, save more, not spend more when it's the wrong time, not buy the boat, you know, focus on the kids' education fund instead of whatever else this other thing is. Focus on their retirement fund instead of this other thing that they're interested in right now. You know, make sure that they remember what their goals were and then what our plan is and say, hey, it's fine. We can change the plan. We can change your goals. That's fine. But we have to put that in the context of the other things. We can't just add a new house without removing something else. Because we've thought about your whole life. We've thought about your growing income. We've thought about so performance for us is always laying it's according to the plan. Here's the goals. You know, here's the plan to get there. Are we on plan? That's that's what performance is to us. And I think that's the only thing that we can hang our hat on. I think everything else is basically smoke and mirrors. Not that, not that many, many, many brokers and advisors won't rely upon smoke and mirrors. Many will. Many will tell you exactly what you want to hear. The question is are are they helping you get better outcomes are they helping you reach the goals and
0: fulfill the plan i think that that i mean really what what it comes down to which i love is that you're flipping the benchmark on its head of saying the benchmark is not another index the ben, you you always have a benchmark but your benchmark is your your plan and, and and everybody is different it reminds me of you know so i'm really into peloton and cycling and everything of that nature and there's a training program that it's called power zones, right? And everybody says they just want to get stronger and faster and they don't know have anything to relate it to. And they always try to compete with Joe down the road or Jim up the street or Amy next door, whatever it may be. But you don't know what their fitness level is and whether that's something that you should strive for. You don't know necessarily how to judge yourself. And I think that the same thing comes with with, uh, investing. You're always trying to compete against what other people you perceive them to do. And the beauty of power zones, which is I think what you're kind of bringing to financial advice is you grow based on your own level of endurance and your own level of fitness. And you retest that all the time, just like you update a financial plan all the time. And then you go and you train towards that and then you see where you are and then you reassess and you do it again. And But it's only compared to you. Nothing else matters because everybody has different zones and they're all training the same way, but it's all scalable to themselves. So it's a scalable training methodology, and that's kind of what you're bringing into financial advice because it's all about what are your goals, and it doesn't matter what anybody else is. Someone may need to get to two million to reach their goals, where you only need to get to one million, which means that someone needs maybe three percent to get to two, but you need seven percent just because of where you are. But it's all very specific yeah. to you. We, yeah, we we talk about it's you know we it's
1: the three things you know asset allocation. Diversification, rebalancing, right? That first thing we we talk about it in the framework of plan appropriate asset allocation. So it's it's we, we line up a client. We talk to a client. We talk, we line up all their incomes. Their, we build in an expectation of increased income in the future. We build in an expectation of inflation. We build in all the different things they want to spend money on throughout their entire lives, and then we test whether or not hey, can we do this? And hey, if if we can't do it, if there's not enough resources to meet all of our goals. Then we have to change something. We have to change, we have to change an income uh, category, we have to change an expense category, or we have to change this, you know, portfolio return category. But the, the beauty of that is, you know, we're backing into the right portfolio for the for the person to reach their, their lifetime goals. So if if the portfolio required is 100 percent equity, which is rare, but if it is a hundred percent equity for them to get everything they want out of life, they also have to then accept a whole bunch of variability around when they can have the things they want, right? Because equities are not consistent straight line returners; they they zig and they zag, and, and so the the portfolio is is something that is created by the plan. It is something that is completely founded in the client's goals. And so we have this portfolio, and 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 we do want to have a successful portfolio, but it has its own benchmark. It, it, it's built specifically for the outcomes that that client has in mind. And so, yeah, it could be 50% equity, 50% fixed income, could be 20% cash, could be... So there is no one benchmark that fits all. And that's that's the part where I think people get in a lot of trouble, especially today. Everyone's, hey, you know, the S&P has done such and such for the last 10 years. I think we should compare that to the S&P. It's great, but, you know, it's gone down 50 plus percent twice in the last two decades. So I'm not sure you want to use that as your, as your you know, Focal point,
0: right? And I and and I think that you know that I think that that's the there's such an education need, and that's what you're providing. And you know, I I guess the the question that I think may be just the 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 elephant in the room because I agree with this, and I but we also know that humans are humans, right? And we're irrational people, and this is rational, right? This is a rational way of looking at it and we ultimately always compare ourselves to others and we always we we are inundated with information and news and thoughts that have nothing to do with us but that we always are judging ourselves against so how do you tactically help your clients remove that noise and stay focused on the rational plan that you're setting up and the rational strategy that you're putting in place
1: so I, I think there's a huge first step before, we, before we're trying to do this tactically. And that is, we, we refer to it in the office as letting people on the arc. So we, in the onboarding process, we are trying to weed out people who, who we don't think will be able to understand that issue. So once we've done that, though, once, once someone's on the arc, then we just have an ecosystem like we have an ecosystem of advice we communicate uh, in lots of different ways across lots of different topics not just markets and economies you know we have we have near monthly events we've done even more than that since covid-19 has come in has come on the scene so our our you know we're we're designing this education and also providing these feedback loops we have a weekly commentary and people people can ask questions and we we invite clients to chat us up Anytime, you know, have an email, email us a question, give us a phone call, schedule a conversation. We are constantly reaching out to our clients, scheduling a conversation. Let's schedule a, a review. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. You know, around the election, I probably had four different Zoom meetings around the election, just because I want people to know what our base case is, what we're expecting, what they could maybe, you know, reasonably be worried about and what is really just, you know, news that is, you know, trying to inflame us and trying to scare us to get us to keep watching. So, We communicate a lot about lots of different stuff but what we communicate is also very very important so we might take you know when when things are going really really well we might talk about how the trend is impermanent you know when when the S&P has gone up for 10 years in a row which you know it has up until earlier this year and so we were telling people hey this probably can't keep going this way you know at some point this will turn and just preparing you for that eventuality right and then when things take a sharp turn, we will immediately begin communicating about, hey, this is really why rebalancing is so important. This is really why we have this process in place. This is really why this is that opportunity for tax loss harvesting that we've been waiting for. Like we've had gains for all these years. Now it's, it's an opportunity to do this other positive thing. And so mm-hmm. trying to trying to create conversations in lots of different ways over, over long periods of time, all with this idea that, hey, we can't predict we are planning oriented. We are goal focused. We are we are not trying to figure out what the next thing is because all the research says even if you know what the next thing is, you don't know how the market's going to respond. And this is proven out time and time and time and time and time again. My 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 dad is a wonderful man who said uh, going into this election and said, hey, if, if Biden wins, I want you to sell all my equities. And I was like, well, you know, no, you know, that's that's crazy. And, and so far, hey, things are actually much better now. Uh, that Biden has won. So, so without, you know, voting with our political bias, without voting with our, you know, our dollars, with our, you know, behavioral biases, with our worries, with our fears, just owning lots of stuff, having it be plan appropriate, rebalancing when the opportunity comes to us. These are the things that we can do. The other things, not helpful, even though that's the stuff that everyone's going to talk about all the time. We just don't use them. Just keep talking to clients, keep letting them know what we're thinking.
0: It, it it's it just gets back to how crazy it is that we've made it this long with as much worrying as we do around these types of events like the election, etc. And you know what happens? Everything actually still just works out the way that it has in the past, which is crazy. But people still react like it's going to be this time is you know going to be the crazy change from that standpoint. And that just goes back to managing your emotions, controlling, you know, having some control over your mind and, and trying to find rationality. And, and I think that, you know, as we kind of round this out, because I, I, I you're a busy man and I want you to get back to, to working, but this conversation is so enthralling, is I want to, you know, in your perspective, what you are doing is, is, is going against the grain of how the industry has been. And so I want to go to the question, this question, conversation about how do we change the industry right you're doing it on a small level with your firm which is going to have a huge impact how do we do this more widespread in the industry what do we need to do to change as an industry to start to flip this this conversation and flip this script like you've done inside your firm so i I think i think there's a
1: couple things probably that we we need to focus on we have to be a little bit more aware of our, our own actual experience. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot in the, in the personal finance blogosphere and a lot of people talk about, you know, keeping a journal because, you know, our brains lie to us all the time. And, and, and there's people that's, you know, everyone talks about their great investment decision. No one talks about the one that they lost hundred percent of. And so as you talk about your great investment decision and you sort of build up this idea about how smart you are, you, 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 you're not including that one that went to zero. You're not including the other stupid things that you've done. And so we have to be aware of our own actual experience. You know, ask questions like, what what are we actually experiencing? And then how are we showing up to greet that experience? And then, you know, are we acting? Are we making decisions and choices that are wise or foolish? And then, you know, have a chronology of that. You Record it so that we know in the future when we look back, oh yeah, I thought this and this and this and this. But it's, I mean, there's all kinds of instances where media pundits, and this is in finance, this is in you know, reporting, this is in pretty much any category, well, five years after an experience, they will claim some sort of wisdom about that experience. But when you go back and look at what they said, they are manufacturing this belief. It's completely not true. But they want to have themselves in a good light, so they've rebuilt the experience. And if they don't, if they're not held to task, which largely, oftentimes, they're not, if they're not held to task, how, how can we hope to ever be held to task with our own, you know, interesting reads on our own histories? So that's, I think, that's that first thing is really have to know what the experience is, know what you're bringing to that experience, and then, and then, really questioning whether that's wise or foolish, and then. This is, this is so hard. You, you have to engage humility. Now, it takes a really big person to try and try and try and try and then admit, I can't do it, especially when it looks like so many people are able to do it. And that's where wisdom comes in because, you know, the, the difference between appearance and reality is huge. So many people are constantly, you know, primping themselves up in social media it's all lies. It's all fake. And so when you start thinking about what's going on in your own head, realize that same kind of stuff is, is going on in other people's heads. And if you pay attention and you, and you get some education and you do some financial planning, you're going to have better outcomes than trying to predict an election or trying to figure out how the market's going to react. Uh, and and, and that's, it's hard to do, you know, uh, to be humble in the face of all these unknowns while everyone else is telling you that they know something.
0: Yeah, I think that that is the you know that's a major takeaway, right? And I think that that's also the cha- the challenge. You know, it's the pro and it's the good and the bad of of you know innovation and in technology, right? Because social media is one of the best, biggest innovations that we've had in the past two cent two decades, and it's great, right? It connects people. Long lost friends are able to stay connected. Families are able to be better joined. But then the the con to that is. It's also now allowed people to go deep into holes on just what they believe. And also we only share the good stuff. I have yet to see a Facebook post or an Instagram post or anything of that nature talking about just the daily difficulties and the daily challenges that we all go through. That's not what's shared. We always put thought into how it's perceived. And so you build up this world of perception of they're in Hawaii. They live such a great life, but you don't know that maybe they had a phone call with a doctor that gave them bad news the day before because they're not going to share that. They're going to wait till they can share it in a in a positive light, and that's just not reality, right? That that's not life. You, you that's not you, you don't have that ability every day to be able to do that, and and it's a it's a tough thing. We now have to overcome that, which is something new that you know, our peers in the past didn't have to overcome necessarily. That's right. So, you know, I, I I I want to wrap up with two last questions for you. And one of them is, how do you, so with what you've done, if you were going to, to talk to a group of new financial advisors or current financial advisors, and you had to give them one thing to walk away with to say, this, if you do this, you're taking a step forward in changing and flipping the script and focusing on the behaviors and getting away from the performance. What would one tactical thing be for an advisor to walk away with? I think I think an advisor has to start with knowing what their real job
1: is, you know, shepherding people to their stated goals, guiding them through the obstacles on the path to those goals. And, you know, know what the job isn't. You know, it's not picking better funds or timing markets or being right about a market forecast. It has to be has to really begin with you know defining a circle of competence that you can actually affect and you you can affect helping people get to their goals you cannot affect you know market timing or or picking what investment will do relatively better than what other investment so if you if you if you apply that if you say okay what's my circle of competence and you just operate out of that circle of competence and when it gets when it gets outside of that circle say, Hey, you know, I can't, I don't know the answer to that question. And just, you know, that's where that humility comes in. I think that becomes life-changing both in terms of the advisor and in
0: terms of the client that that advisor is serving. I love that. I love that. And so then my final question, right? We've talked about, I've said it a lot and I said how I believe that you are creating positive change in this industry by the way that you look and interact and serve your clients. And and there's a question that I've always I'm always intrigued on when I talk to industry experts and people in this industry as to why are advisors going to be forced to change, right? I think that it's such an interesting conversation because we always hear in all these all these conferences and everything about this of, you know, if you don't do this, you're gonna be displaced, right? If you don't do this, you're gonna be gone in ten years. Robos are taking over. And yet. As all of those things have evolved and, and, and been said, advisors have yet to really change that much, and business continues to grow and be really, really good for them. So I'm always intrigued as to why, what is that kind of thing or that moment or that that period of time going to be that's going to cause advisors to change? What is that? We started with what your why is, and I like to end with the why the industry is going to change and i'm always just interested to know what's going to be that driver to make advisors look at their firms, look at themselves and say i have to change now.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's one that i wrestle with a lot just because i do i do think that there is a a very long-term trend towards, you know, more technology, fee compression, those kinds of things. You know, brokers are going away, advisors are coming up. So I think there is these long-term changes, but I, I don't think there's any must about it. I don't. I don't think there's. No one's going to force you know this advisor or that advisor to change, and I think that advisors have slowly you know eked out changes over the years. You know we're always changing. You know there's you have know, probably seen the 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 technology adoption curve. You know some people change really quickly, others change. More slowly, some people never change. The thing that's unknowable, I think, is is how much of the financial technology that we're seeing introduced today is still going to be around in five years or ten years, and and how much of that technology is going to be an absolute requirement for ad- advisors to adopt in order to support better outcomes for clients, and how much of it will just be nice to have, and and how much of it will disappear entirely. Uh, and this is this is going to make me sound dated. It flies a little bit of. Uh, in the face of all of these conversations. But I I think a wise and compassionate human being with a yellow pad will continue to be a good option for some people seeking advice. I, I think, I think people who want the wise advisor with a legal pad might be shrinking in number, but I'm not sure all the bells and whistles lead to better outcomes. So I'm, I'm doubtful that people are always seeking what's best for them, right? It may be that it may be that clients desire more and better technology, you know, doesn't, maybe that desire for technology doesn't correlate with better outcomes. And so if we remain, if we remain laser focused on better client outcomes, we know that there's going to be room for old school advisors, new school advisors, and then ever so slowly, these things will continue to change. And I do think that there is going to be a trend towards either price compression or You got to do something else for your clients. You got to create additional value somehow. You got to provide more educational tools. You got to provide more resources. You got to do additional services to to maintain your your fees. But that's true in any industry, right? You're you're not buying a, a 1980s car anymore. You're buying a 2020 you know 2020 car now, 2021 car now, and and that car comes with all kinds of new stuff and bells and whistles for relatively a similar price. So. That's true of everything. It's just it's just a slow inexorable change and I think we're going to we're in for another decade, two decades, you know, century of slow inexorable change.
0: Yeah, I think you I I think that the beauty of this industry is that there will there's enough opportunities or people that need help and I think that that's why the the niche RIAs are not going away because there's going to just be people that like that more and that's okay right? They're, they're doing, and there's going to be some that love you know, highly innovative firms. And that's good. And that's the beauty of this industry is that there's not one way to deliver wealth management planning, financial planning, financial advice. And, and then everybody's unique. I mean, everybody's different in what they want, what they desire, and what makes them comfortable. And ultimately, I think that what it gets back to is no matter how you provide the advice, the human relationship and the human aspect is the most important part of this business. And it will continue to be that no matter what technology you use, all the technology should allow you to be better at doing that, which is your core differentiator. And that's that's similar to what you are alluding to as well.
1: Yeah. I I think that, I think that if, if we as humans, I think that we as humans have a better chance of affecting other humans behavior than any kind of technology will be able to affect another human's behavior. And so if you say that, it is a human's behavior that will determine the human's outcome then what we need is ways to affect human behavior and there's great technological nudges out there there's there's you know there's fantastic ways we can we can track things you know we can track our budgets track our spending we can track our portfolios we can track these things and that actually helps us make good decisions as well but it's always going to come down to the heat of the moment of the decision uh, whether it's a spending decision whether it's a You know, what do I do with my portfolio now? Markets are down 30, 40%, whether it's, you know, oh my God, you know, Bitcoin is back to 20,000. Should I start buying it now? You know, that, so these decisions are all very, very human and they're going to be driven a lot by psychology. So what can we do to have an effect on the human decision-making process? And that's, I think, how we ultimately get to better outcomes for our clients.
0: I love that. I love it. And I just love your perspective. I love what your initiative and focus is and how you're serving clients. I think it's just a it's a breath of fresh air in this industry. And so I appreciate you spending, you know, heck, almost forty minutes here with me and, and the listeners and sharing your, your knowledge and insights. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there that would love to get in touch with you and, and follow you and buy into even more of what you're saying. So tell tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and how they should follow you and stay stay in stay in touch.
1: Yeah, the, the best thing to do is to go to mindful.money at the bottom of the homepage. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter and and we you know we introduce our courses that way, we introduce a lot of our events that way. That's this the best best way to reach out to us and get in touch. I'm on all the social media, you can see that on the on the website as
0: well. But mindful.money. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. Stay well, be well, and, and, and thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think.